Matthew 13 is where we will look at today. Back in May 2007, the newspaper, the Telegraph, had this headline, Hoard of Treasure Found on Wreck Off Cornwall. Any of you ever hear this story by any chance? 2007? Anyway, here's what the newspaper said. One of the greatest mysteries in treasure hunting history appeared to have been solved after deep-sea explorers said they had recovered 17 tons of gold and silver coins worth over 250 million British pounds from a shipwreck off Cornwall, England. You'll see in this picture here, this is a picture that was in the newspaper, some of the gold and silver coins just buckets and buckets of of this stuff that they found. Anyway, the salvage companies have spent years looking for this wreck of Merchant Royal. It was an English ship known as the El Dorado of the Seas, which sank in bad weather near the Isles of Sicily in 1641. Hadn't been found since 1641. Uh, It was returning to uh, Dartmouth laden with treasure from Mexico. The ship was owned by a group of London merchants. Reportedly, uh, they had on board, this is what it was reported, uh, 300,000 pounds in silver, over 100,000 pounds in gold, and at least 400,000 pounds in jewels. That was what was lying in the hold of the ship. But it was taken on water as it reached the western approaches and it ran into heavy weather. And as a result, it sank. This was such a loss, as the newspaper said, such a loss to the treasury of the nation that uh, the, the House of Commons actually stopped its proceedings to make this announcement. It was such big news in Britain at the time. I thought that was pretty amazing that they were able to find that and And they found so much. But if you think that particular treasure is amazing, what we're going to see in the Bible is a far, far greater and better treasure. And what we're going to find in in these parables that Jesus is going, in the teaching He's going to give us today, is that we're going to find a treasure that is going to bring ultimate happiness. It's one of those things that the world longs for. Everybody wants to be happy. Sadly, most people go looking for it in all the wrong places. So here's how we can find ultimate happiness according to what Jesus says. The one who created us, the one who knows us better than we even know ourselves, tells us how to find ultimate happiness. And so, if you're interested, listen up. Jesus has some great news for you. The first parable he tells us here in Matthew 13 is the parable of the hidden treasure. It's a very short parable. It's only one verse. Look at verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Well, that's it. Really short parable, isn't it? Well, uh, I will tell you about this particular parable and the next one, which are very similar. In fact, they go they go together because if you notice the very first word of verse forty-five, 
It's the word again. The word again is the first word of verse 45. That tells you there is this connection, uh, this link, if you will, between verse 44 and 45 in these two parables. So uh, these two parables are answering two very important questions that we see in this context, from the context. Number one, why should we give our lives for a kingdom that we can't actually see? Disciples had a lot of questions. Remember, Jesus received a lot of opposition in chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12. They had given up everything for this kingdom and for Christ and for their Messiah, and they couldn't understand a lot of what was going on. Why was the kingdom and the king receiving such opposition? Well, the second question is this. Can the kingdom truly be the answer to our search for ultimate fulfillment? Or in other words, ultimate happiness. Can the search for this kingdom be the, be the answer to this? Well, the answer to both those questions is yes. It's yes. And you say, why? Well, the, <laughs> the answer is because the kingdom is extremely valuable. The kingdom is extremely valuable. That's one of the teachings that Jesus is giving us here. Well, let me ex- explain a cultural gap here that needs to be bridged. Okay? There might be something here you're, you're not understanding because there's, there's cultural barriers that we, we all have when we come to God's Word. And one of those that we need to understand is that Jesus lived in a society that had no banks. There were no safety deposit boxes. There, there wasn't the, a supposedly secure place to put money. Well, that was the society they lived in, and, and 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 there are people even today who who don't who don't trust banks. In fact, the very first house I bought in New Zealand, when I walked into my wardrobe, there was a concrete vault sitting right underneath the carpet. I, I lift up this carpet, and there's this huge concrete vault where they would put their money. It was right in the wardrobe, and they were from Asia. In case you're wondering, my might explain why they bothered to build this concrete vault right in the wardrobe. So even even in New Zealand, people don't trust banks and get people hiding money in all sorts of places. In fact, I stayed with a farmer in the United States one time, and he had he had these one hundred dollar bills, a huge stack of one hundred dollar bills, wadded up in this glass jar in his freezer. I thought that was rather interesting. So even even today, people don't don't trust banks, and we have banks. Well, they didn't have those back then. And that's the society that Jesus lived in. So they would understand the, the story, this parable that Jesus was telling. And so what they would do in order to hide their valuables from, from people who would want to steal them, they would, they'd often hide them underground. And so what happened to the original owner of the field, you might ask? I mean, why is it that this person's finding the valuables hidden in the ground? Well, Jesus doesn't say what happened to the original owner of the field, so... Uh, because he doesn't say, well, we, we can assume then maybe either he was killed suddenly or he died suddenly uh, somehow in some way. So the original owner who had hidden the valuables in the ground, we can assume is no longer around. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's, that sort of thing happened back in those days. And, and a lot of people, they come to this story and they wonder, if, if it was actually legal for this particular man to go and buy a field that had buried treasure in it. Well, 
let me just tell you this. Both in Roman and Jewish law, uh, the treasure would belong to the one who actually buys the field. So it's if you find treasure in the field you bought, you're the owner, it belongs to you. That was, that was the law at that time. And by the way, let me just, just say, the, the, the legal and moral issues of this is not the point of this parable. Okay, uh, We can easily get sidetracked on, on those sort of things. The point is, the guy who buys the field, the treasure belongs to him. Which is why he, go, he goes through the whole process. He sells everything to buy the field, because he wants the treasure. Well, next question you might ask is, well, why didn't the laborer take the treasure? He found it. So why didn't he just take it? Isn't it just finder, finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Isn't that the case? No, it's not. You know, why did he bother to put the treasure back in the ground? Well, the man put the treasure back in the ground because he knew if he just took it out of the ground, the, the owner, whoever the owner was at that time, would take the treasure for himself. Of course he would, like any owner would. And so the only way the farmer could ensure that the treasure would be his was he actually had to go and purchase the field. So if he owns the field, then whatever's in the field belongs to him. However, there's a problem. As you can see in the story, he wasn't a rich man. <laughs> he wasn't a millionaire, apparently. And so he apparently he was... You know, at the poorer end of, he's probably one of the, the just a general laborer who found the the treasure in the field. So what does he do? He took the Bible says he took everything he owned, and 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 everything, so that he could try to buy this field. So he sold all his possessions. And notice the Bible says there's that interesting phrase. He he didn't do it begrudgingly. He does it out of joy. Out of joy, he goes and sells all his possessions and everything he can to, to buy that field. Why? He knew it would be more than worth it in the end. That's why he did it. So here's the point, I think, of the parable, which I have on the screen here for you. So I think this is the point. That despite the kingdom's appearance, it's well worth the investment of a person's life. The kingdom is worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. So, it's worth surrendering everything to attain. Why? Because it's incredibly valuable. That's why. Uh, This particular man knew the treasure was far greater value than all of his possessions combined. So, no no other aspect is highlighted in this particular short parable. So, clearly, uh, this is a call for radical discipleship. Radical discipleship. It calls for us to, to give up everything for that which is the greatest, the kingdom. Well, that's the parable of the hidden treasure. Number two, let's look at the parable of the costly pearl. The costly pearl or the, the pearl of great value. Look at verse 45. The word again there, the first word of verse 45 is connecting this parable to, to the previous one. And it says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the parable of the costly pearl. Hopefully you know what a pearl is. I hope you do. If you don't, I've given you a picture of one. 
A pearl is what comes inside a clam. And the clam, God has made the clam in an amazing way to produce a pearl as a result of a, some, some irritation like a piece of sand, for example. If a piece of sand gets inside the clam or an oyster, then that, that oyster will, will secrete something around that grain of sand and keep doing that to the point eventually it creates a pearl. Well, during Jesus' day, pearls were of tremendous value. Uh, some have even said they were, they were of greater value than even gold and silver. So, what we have here in this, this particular parable, though, is that uh, the central figure is a little different from the, the, uh, the one about the hidden treasure. In this case, we have a jewel merchant. He, he's looking for this first-class pearl. I hope you know not all pearls are the same. Uh, not all pearls are as nice as that one you see in that picture there. Uh, some pearls are deformed. Some pearls have different colors. Uh, not all pearls are nice and round. So ladies, if you've got one of these necklaces, it's got all nice, big, round pearls, it's probably fake, okay? Because <laughs> if you get a huge necklace with big, round pearls, it's going to cost you, and they're real pearls, it's going to cost you a lot of money, even today. But in Jesus' day, the pearls were, were extremely valuable. And it, there were wholesale dealers who traveled around the world, and they would sell Huge quantities of merchandise. Some have even said from, from my reading that it wasn't the Roman armies that conquered the world. It was the merchants that conquered the known world. Well, I don't know. You'd think about that. But anyway, they um, certainly had a great impact. And so in this particular parable here, the key is not so much the mode of the discovery as it is the total surrender that actually accompanies it. This guy, he again, he we see radical discipleship going on here. Or, or uh, he is he's willing to do anything to get that pearl. Now, why did Jesus talk about pearls? I, well, for, first of all, you need to understand pearls were considered the most luxurious of jewels. Uh, they could be found in places like the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf and even came as far as India. So those were some of the places they may have found them. Uh, they were the equivalent of, to, to millions and millions of dollars. And so this is not unusual for, for people to hear these kind of stories. And it wasn't unusual for, for even merchants to become, to become collectors of, of valuable things. In, in this case, we have a uh, collectors even, well, we've seen this throughout history, haven't we? Go through great lengths to purchase priceless heirlooms. And why are they doing it? Simply for the enjoyment of, of having something of great value. And so the message is that the kingdom is priceless. And no sacrifice is too great for attaining it. And so it demands the surrender of all earthly value. But what do we see here? It's worth it, isn't it? It's totally worth it. And so here's, again, I think the point that it is well worth the investment of a person's life to, to give up anything and everything to gain the kingdom. And by the way, when you get the kingdom, you get the king. The most important part of the kingdom. 
So we're talking about a spiritual kingdom here, of course. We're not talking about uh, something that's physical. This is a spiritual kingdom. All right, anyway, then we come to the next parable, uh, the parable of the dragnet, or the parable of the net. Look at verse 47. And again, look at uh, the very first word is the word again. That word is connecting this parable with the previous two parables. And here's what Scripture says in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that ends the parable of the dragnet. Again, uh, we, we might have a little bit of a cultural barrier going on here for us. You may not understand what a dragnet is. Uh, if you've ever uh, put a net out in a, in a harbor or something like that, or you, might, you might understand the process a bit better than, than other people. But uh, I've given you a little picture here. You might understand what they're doing. That's a dragnet. Dragnet would uh, have floats. Uh, they would either be made of cork or some lightweight wood on the top to help the net float on the water. And then they'd have some form of a weight on the bottom of the net so to, to keep the, the net down so that the fish could get caught in it. And uh, they would uh, often use boats, to, to, to maybe sometimes two boats, to, to take this very long net out into the water. Sometimes they might anchor the, the one side of the net on the land and then use one boat to take the net out and make a huge circle and then come back to land, and then they would draw the net back to the land and take the fish out. And so it would trap every kind of fish that would be swimming near the surface of the water. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a really deep net. And so what they do is then they would, uh, they would separate the various kinds of fish, as we see in our parable that Jesus is giving here. Uh, not exactly sure how they're separating the fish. Some, had, some have said they were separating the edible fish from the fish who weren't edible. Uh, one commentator said this, by the way, that, uh, quote, the dragnet was 250 to 450 meters long and about two meters deep with a rope at each end, end quote. There's a picture somebody's painting of, of uh, people probably the disciples fishing there at the Sea of Galilee. And so this parable is a common experience of fishermen, uh, even in Jesus' day. And so after they, they pulled the nets that was filled with fish onto the shore, they would weed out the bad fish. And, and since these bad fish uh, were probably already dead, uh, they were thrown away. And so the basis of the separation uh, would sometimes be a, a ceremonial separation. In other words, it's, it's kind of like the book of Leviticus. It's the separation of the clean fish from the unclean fish. But the separation could also apply to the edible and inedible fish. And so fishermen in the Sea of Galilee would uh, separate at least, uh, there, was, there was at least 24 various uh, species of fish. And so they... They, they had quite a separation process they would go through. 
So according to verse 49, the fate of the righteous is not spelled out for us, only that of the wicked. And of course, we're not talking about literal fish here. Jesus is using this earthly story to tell us of a uh, spiritual meaning. And so he's he's not talking about bad fish. He's talking about people here. And so it's clear the separation is not now in the present, but he's talking about something that's going to happen later on, a later judgment. And in this case, it's at the close of the age, the end of the age. And so again, Jesus teaches us that the righteous are separated from the wicked. We, we've already seen that previously in a previous parable. And you say, well, well, who are these righteous people anyway? How do we know who is righteous? Well, let's take Matthew in its greater context. Matthew helps us to determine who he's talking about. Scripture is its own best interpreter. So we see in the book of Matthew that the righteous are those who actually persevere in right living, and that right living is according to God's will. For example, let me just quote to you some scriptures coming from the book of Matthew. Chapter 5, verse 6, here's what it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Hopefully you get the point. Matthew talks a lot about righteousness. Who are these right people? They're the ones who live according to God's Word. And they persevere in it. They they care what God's will is, and they do it. So the point is this. The kingdom citizens should look forward to the justice and reward of the final judgment. But until then, Christians will, will coexist with evil. Just like bad fish and good fish swim together in the in the sea or the ocean. Well, verse 50 describes the terrible fate of the wicked for us. Again, Jesus Jesus believes in a place, a literal place called hell. <laughs> All right? So please do not believe the lies and deceptions of this world. They they're const- even even some people who claim to be Christians preach a false gospel preach things like annihilationism for example that you know when you die you're you're just dead or uh you know or you're reincarnated or you know you, you go to purgatory or there's all kinds of things that, various things that people believe in Jesus believed in hell and, and in fact he preached about hell more than he ever taught about love <laughs> so we can't ignore what Jesus is saying here and he talks about the terrible fate of the wicked and eternal punishment in fact there's four important, four, four important facts about God's judgment that I want to highlight here for you. Number one, God's judgment is thorough. God's judgment is thorough. So these fishermen, as they're bringing in this dragnet, of course, were thorough. But uh, the, the fish in the dragnet were, were mixed together. But there's coming a time when the mixture is going to be over. 
Here on earth, we have mixture all the time, don't we? We're surrounded by mixture. For example, even uh, we, we see uh, that uh, redeemed people in the visible church are mixed together with unbelievers. Uh, redeemed people who are children of Jesus Christ mixed together with children of the devil. However, when the Lord sends His angels to execute judgment, what we see here is that those days will be over and then human beings will find themselves in either one camp or the other. They're not going to be mixed together. It's the good camp and the bad camp, so to speak. The righteous camp and the ungodly, the unrighteous camp. Either they're going to be in heaven or they're going to be in hell without Christ and they're going to be without hope. There is no second chance. And by the way, no one will be partially in one camp and partially in the other. It doesn't work that way. You're in one camp or the other. You can't be in both. So God's judgment is thorough. Number two, God's judgment is determined. It's determined. It has been previously determined in the sense that the basis for separation is already established. God has already established the basis for this separation. And you say, well, what is the basis? The basis is whether you and I and everyone else has received the good seed of the gospel. All these parables in chapter 13 kind of, they work together. And so the basis is whether we believed in Christ or not. Whether we've laid everything aside to gain the hidden treasure, to gain this pearl of great price. Have you done that? If you have, then you're in the kingdom. So hopefully you know whether you've done that or not. If, if not, please, please come and talk to me. And so let me ask you this. Which camp are you in? Which camp are you in? You can't be in both. You're either in the good camp or the bad camp here. So if you're not with Christ now, then you will be without Christ then, Judgment Day. But if you're with Christ now, then you will be with Him in Judgment Day. So we see that God's judgment is thorough. Number two, God's judgment is determined. But number three, God's judgment is permanent. It's permanent. Nothing can be more permanent than collecting uh, of good fish and then the discarding of bad fish. <laughs> right? The, the bad fish pile did not make its way into the good fish pile. <laughs> right? It didn't happen. If you were in the bad fish pile, it's permanent. There's no second chances. So, on that, and that's that's the point that one of the points Jesus is making that on Judgment Day, the opportunity for repentance will be over. And so, the day for trusting in Jesus Christ will be past. And so, today then is the best time to repent of our sin and, and to believe in Christ. And so, the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. And so, it's 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 incumbent upon us that we don't wait. Don't wait for some better time to repent. Don't listen to the devil's lie. That's one of the devil's lie is that, you know, just, just have your fun now. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, tomorrow you're going to die. You'll have time later on. That's the devil's lie. The reality is the devil doesn't care about you. He seeks whom he can devour. And so instead, what do we need to do here? We need to listen to Jesus Christ. He's the one who loves us. And so we need to hear him and believe him. Number four, we see that God's judgment is dreadful. 
Jesus describes God's judgment as dreadful. In fact, He uses these words, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, That is not a good image. You should not be thinking of someone who is happy and joyful and having a good time. When people are weeping and gnashing teeth, it is a sorrowful time. We're talking about a time of great pain here. And so those who have not trusted and followed Christ have a terrible fate awaiting them. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus said these people will weep. They'll gnash their teeth together. No mere human being would dare predict that fate for another human being. But Jesus is not a mere human being, is He? He's God. He knows what hell is like. After all, He's the one who created it for Satan and His angels. But yet, this is exactly what Jesus does here. He predicts a rather dreadful fate for those who reject Him. And and by the way, again, I will remind you, Jesus had more to say about hell than He did about God's love. So according to Jesus... The first thing here that, that is terrible at hell is that there's suffering going on here. Jesus teaches this truth in the parable of the dragnet here. He said these wicked sinners are going to be thrown into what? A fiery furnace. That's what Jesus says. And then he describes them as weeping and gnashing their teeth. People don't grind their teeth together when, you know, when they're feeling good and they're happy and joyful. In fact, you ever heard that saying, bite the bullet? You know where the saying, bite the bullet, comes from? That, that's back in the days you know, when, when doctors would, would hack off your limb with a saw and an axe. You know, and they didn't, they didn't have all these, these nice anesthetics to put you to sleep like the, all the surgeries I've had. You know, praise God, they were able to put me to sleep, so I had no idea what they were, you know, the, what they were doing to my body. So at least during the surgery, you're comfortable. You're just in pain after the surgery. But imagine having, having an arm or a leg cut off with no anesthetic. And so people actually broke their teeth because they're in so much pain. So the saying, bite the bullet, comes from that. They would put a bullet made out of lead in your mouth, and people would bite down on that bullet on that lead to keep from breaking their teeth. They were in so much pain. Jesus is using this illustration for us to understand the the suffering and the pain going on in hell. The second thing that makes hell terrible is people actually remember the blessings of their previous life and, and they, they'll remember, if they heard the gospel, they'll remember lost chances to believe in Christ. And so if you're without Christ, you should realize that however disappointing you think your life is now, my friend, there is coming a day when your present life will seem far better than it will then. And guess what? The memory of your good things are going to haunt you. It's actually going to increase your suffering unless you repent now and come to Jesus Christ. That's reality. Well, Jesus moves on to tell us another parable about the new and old treasures. Look at verse 51. Look at verse 51. Have you understood all these things? This is his question to his disciples. What, what is he talking about by there? These things. Well, again, take his comments within the context. He's referring to all these parables of the kingdom he's been talking about. So do you understand these teachings about the kingdom? 
Well, look at their answer. Verse 51, they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Well, the disciples' answer is interesting. The, the disciples give an affirmative answer. They, they said yes. <laughs> what is that? That's, that's basically an expression of volitional faith in the king of, of this kingdom. It was a carefully considered choice that I'm putting my faith in the king and his teachings. What the king says is true. Now, by the way, this, this does not mean they fully understood everything of, of what Jesus taught. I mean, that is clear as we read on in the book of Matthew. In fact, chapter 15, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of understanding. So clearly they didn't understand everything, but they thought they understood, right? They're declaring, my faith is in the king of this kingdom. All right? So in this parable, the disciples here, we see, notice, Jesus compares uh, the disciples to scribes in a homeowner who has a storeroom. And, and, and in the, the English Standard Version, it usually, it, it, it literally uses the word treasure. We're talking about a treasure room, a storeroom, where people would, would put uh, important belongings. And so the aspect of treasure comes to the fore here when we think of God's truths as a treasure house of wisdom. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's not referring to a literal storehouse where you might keep food or clothing or, or uh, wine or whatever. But uh, the picture is that of a householder going into his storehouse on a daily basis. And what is he, why would he go there? He, he, would, he would go and he'd carry out food. He'd go there for his clothing in uh, other necessities as they were needed. And so in the parable, the treasured storehouse relates to our heart and our minds. Therefore, good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them. Sounds a lot like some previous verses we read earlier in Matthew, where Jesus says it's out of the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. And so what are the things new and old? Well, first, they're not the... I'll just... I'll give you some things I read in commentaries, some people's ideas, okay? Um, it is not the new in place of the old, nor are they the Jesus tradition given new meaning in new situations. <laughs> Those are some ideas that I read about. But uh, I, I certainly think what Jesus is referring to here is a new reality that is fulfilled um, in the new covenant, it, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled the old covenant reality. He did not, as he said earlier in chapter 5, he did not come to destroy the law, he came to fulfill it. And so therefore the items that are coming out of this, this treasure storehouse relate to the kingdom truths that Jesus has been teaching all throughout Matthew chapter 13. By the way, I, I, I do think it's actually significant. Notice... Which word comes first? What comes first? Old or new? Did you notice that? New comes first. I do often think the the order of which word comes first is significant, and, and in this case I would agree that because new comes first, that is the primary emphasis. 
It's, it's the one that, if you will, trumps the old. Okay. Now, l- listen to what this commentator said. He also agrees with that, that uh, reasoning. But anyway, here's what he says. The good householder has in his treasure box some, things, some new things and some old things. He despises neither the new nor the old as such. It is the temptation of both the radical and the conservative to value the one too highly and the other too lightly. Jesus is pointing out that there are fresh insights that are of value and that there are also teachings that have stood the test of time. In the, if the word order is significant, the new matters more than the old, and Jesus is saying that the new teachings his followers are embracing do not do away with the old teachings. In other words, those of the Old Testament. But are the key to understanding them. The new age has dawned, and it is only in the recognition of that fact that the old can be understood in its essential function of preparing the way for the new, end quote. So, here's the point. The new covenant is not a replacement for the old covenant. Rather, I think what Jesus is teaching here, that the kingdom of heaven actually brings the old covenant to its intended fulfillment. Remember, the old covenant, the Old Testament, was pointing to Christ. Promises made in the Old Covenant. The New Testament is promises kept in Christ in particular. So, we see the New Covenant intending uh, or fulfilling what was intended in those promises of the Old. Well, verse 53 gives us our conclusion to this passage. Look at verse 53. It says, And, the reason I'm including verse 53 with the previous context. One reason is because it starts with an and. Look what it says. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. Now, Lord willing, next week we'll carry on in the context here, but notice Jesus, He goes away, and we're going to see later on why He goes away. There's more opposition to come. It is not his time to die yet, if you will. Well, let's think about some application here, and we'll wrap this up. Number one, the kingdom is the most precious, valuable reality you have. That is one of the teachings that Jesus is giving here us here. This kingdom is more valuable than your own life, your spouse, your children, your house, all your belongings. All of that put together pales in comparison to the value of the kingdom. The question is, do you recognize it? Do you recognize it? So in light of this reality, there's only one possible reaction to this reality. It's the radical surrender of one's whole life in order to have the kingdom. And by the way, you can't buy the kingdom. Okay? So, that is not the point of these parables, okay? (laughs) You cannot buy salvation. You cannot buy salvation. Christ bought it with His own precious blood. It's already been paid for. And so the kingdom is this this great prize. In fact, it's the greatest prize this world has ever seen. But to have it, you have to throw away all of your worth, your, your, your worldly values. In fact, you've got to do exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Philippians 3. Paul, Paul has this huge list of values, things he valued, you know, 
you know, I'm a Pharisee, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul's going through all of these, these things that, that to him, this was the greatest thing there was before he became a Christian. And then Paul sees Christ, he sees the resurrection Christ, and, and you know what he does? He says, all of that stuff is manure. It's a pile of manure. It's worthless. It's useless. In fact, it damns me to hell. And he says, I need Christ. Christ is the greatest treasure there is. My friend, that's what we got to do. We, we put way too much value in our identity and in our possessions and our accomplishments in our bank accounts and our families and so forth. Christ, compared to Christ, those things are a pile of manure. Okay? The kingdom is far more precious and valuable than anything else. Number two, you cannot separate the good from the bad, so don't even try. <laughs> Notice, who gets the job of the separating, according to what Jesus says? Do you? No. Jesus gives that job to the angels. The angels get the job of the separating in the judgment day. You don't get to do that. So your task is fishing for souls, and you need to leave that task up to God to separate the good from the bad, and he's going to do that at the final judgment day. However, having said that, you, you need to warn the wicked that there is judgment day coming. There is, a future, there is a future eternal punishment that awaits all of those who reject Jesus Christ. That's your responsibility to tell them. Number three, value the old and commit to the new at the same time. Okay, By all means, value the old, but we also need to commit to the new. Let me put it to you this way. I like the way C.S. Lewis said it. C.S. Lewis said, beware of chronological snobbery. Some of you might be thinking, what? Chronological snobbery? What is that guy talking about? <laughs> chronological snobbery. Let me, let me put it to you in my own words. That's where we, we can be either radical or conservative. That's our, our tendency to swing one, one way or another. We, you know, some people, you know, they, they put an extreme valuable on old stuff. You know, it might be the old dead authors. But then you get some people, for example, they, you know, they don't want the old dead authors. They only want the guys who are still alive. The, the, the newest is the greatest to them. Or it's the new music. You know, we only want new music. Forget all that old stuff written in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. Even 2000, you know, that's for some people, that's old. And so, you, you know, you get some people who are like that. That's chronological snobbery. Beware of that. All right, we, and, and we often have a pendulum swing. We can go one way or another. And so it's important for Christians today to become familiar with both the Old and the New Testament. All right, let me just apply this to your Bible. All right, don't avoid the Old Testament. Read it, study it, know it, believe it. Look at the cross references when you're reading the New Testament so that you can understand your New Testament. <laughs> All right? I mean, think about it. Let, let me just give you one example. How can you possibly understand the book of Hebrews without reading Leviticus? You can't. You can't. Right? So, by all means, study the old. Right? Don't neglect it. 
because it gives a, a full revelation of God. So the kingdom servant or, or a Christian disciple is to be like the scribe here in this parable that Jesus is talking about who has become a disciple of the kingdom. What's he doing? What, what is he doing here? What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's continually opening these treasures. Notice it's both old and new. It's a good balance there for us. So, in these seven parables of the kingdom, Jesus has been talking about here in Matthew 13, King Jesus presented some truths that the disciples were what were, well, they were well aware of, but of course some that were new to them. Jesus was answering some very valuable questions that they would have had in their minds. And so, through these parables, Jesus answered uh, at least one question. Here, here's one question I thought of. What happened to the kingdom? And the answer is, by the way, God's kingdom will be established on earth. It, it started at Jesus. When Jesus was here, there was a present reality to His kingdom, but one day... Righteousness will reign, the King of Kings will reign, and every knee will bow to King Jesus. And that will happen at Jesus' second coming. But meanwhile, we have good and evil that, that, that must coexist with one another. So let's keep looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, one of my favorite stories comes from Charles Dickens. How many of you have ever read A Christmas Carol? How many of you have read that? Oh, it is a must-read for every Christian. It's one of those books you must read. It's a great book. One of my favorite. We used to watch it uh, every year in, uh, on video, back in the days when people still had video players. Uh, one reason I like this particular book is because of the dramatic change in Ebenezer Scrooge. There's somebody's picture of of an Ebenezer Scrooge. But anyway, in, in that particular story, um, Scrooge is, is wealthy. He is a wealthy man, but he's a miserable man. He is a grumpy old man. He is, he is always complaining and he's greedy. You know, he doesn't even want, he doesn't even want his, his workmate to light the fire. He doesn't want him putting more coal on the fire because coal costs money. He's a grumpy, complaining, Stingy old man. Well, one of the things I love about this story is there. He, Scrooge has encounters with three spirits on Christmas Day, and he's he's given a second chance at life. And there's a few lines from the book that talk about Scrooge's transformation. Here's what Charles Dickens says. You know, as I read this, I I almost wonder if Dickens was a Christian. But anyway, I don't I don't know if he is or not. But here here's what he says on the screen. Scrooge went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. End quote. Well, what, what happened to this guy? Well, after his transformation... Scrooge walks through the streets of London, and he's, and he's no longer stingy. He's actually freely distributing his wealth to the needy. And, and in fact, this old man, who, who seemed very decrepit before, is actually very giddy. And he's, he's jumping around, woo! And he's carrying children on his, his, his shoulder, like he is, this is Tiny Tim in, in this picture here. And, 
the guy who actually scoffed at the idea of charity is now a, he's taking great pleasure in giving as much money away as possible. <laughs> and so on the, the story's final page, I love what Dickens says about Scrooge. Here's what he says, quote, Some people laugh to see the alteration in him. But he let, he let them laugh and little heeded them. In his own heart laughed. And that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. Here's the point. What a transformation. That's one of the things I love about the story. That it, has, it has a good ending. There's a transformation in in his heart. Because what he did was a result of what happened in his heart. What was the source of Scrooge's transformation? Well, you gotta, you got to read the story to find out, don't you? What happened was he gained an eternal perspective. Scrooge gained an eternal perspective. He saw the past, the present, and the future. He saw the consequences of his, his bad life, if you will. What he did in his body. So he gained an eternal perspective, a very valuable perspective. And so through supernatural invention, or, or intervention, I should say, Scrooge was allowed to see his past, his present, and by the way, still changeable future. And he saw it through the eyes of eternity. The Bible says God's put eternity in our hearts. The question is, are you looking at everything in your life and in this world through a lens of eternity? Do you have an eternal perspective as Scrooge gained. If not, boy, you need to pray that God would transform you. And He can. And He will. So let's ask God for the same insight into our lives.